you have your Bibles, let's turn to Psalm 51. If you don't have your Bible, feel free to look at the TV screen. We're going to do something a little different tonight. I want everybody to stand with me. And I want to read Psalm 51 as a congregation. Let's read this psalm together. Psalm 51. We'll start with verse 1. We don't have to read this superscription. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Next. (laughs) For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. May be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for this great psalm. And God, we're asking that your Holy Spirit illuminate our minds and hearts to not only understand this text, but God, to have true repentance whenever we sin. We pray these things in Christ's name. So as we go through the psalm tonight, we're going to see characteristics of genuine repentance, what that looks like, that flowed through David's life and has become a paradigm of prayer for the forgiveness of sins through every century since David penned this psalm. When I was a young Christian, I was at a church service one morning, and the senior pastor's son, who was also a pastor, came up to the pulpit and he started to speak. And his opening words in his introduction were this, The world is sick. The world is sick with sin. We're all sick with sin. And when he said that, that pierced my heart. That the reality that I was sick with sin, that the world is really sick with sin. 
And without a doubt, sin is at the heart of the world's problems. But more than that, sin is at the heart of each person's problem. Every Christian must watch his or her own heart. When sin has been exposed in our lives, repentance must follow immediately. Now here's what I want to propose to you tonight as we're going through this text. I want you to think about this. When we sin against a holy and righteous God, we need to genuinely repent of it and experience God's forgiveness and renewal. And then we will declare His goodness and mercy and salvation to others. Now Psalm 51 is one of the penitential psalms, meaning the psalmist is expressing deep remorse over his sins. Um, The occasion of this psalm is identified in the superscription or the title in your Bibles. You'll see that. The author was King David, and the occasion was when he committed the heinous sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite, in order to cover up the sin when he was informed that Bathsheba was pregnant. We read this in 2 Samuel 11. It was approximately one year after David committed this grievous sin when Nathan the prophet confronted him and exposed David's sin by way of a story. And when David finally realized the wickedness of his own sin, he wrote this beautiful penitent psalm which reveals his broken, crushed heart. David was a great sinner. He was a great sinner, but relied on a great God who forgives. As a matter of fact, David, in spite of his sin, was called a man after God's own heart, by God himself. You see, David recognized his sin and genuinely repented of it and sought God's mercy and God's forgiveness. And in the psalm tonight, we're going to identify six characteristics of genuine repentance. The first one is, the first characteristic of genuine repentance is a cry for forgiveness. When we sin, when you and I sin, do we plead God to forgive us? Psalm 51 verses 1 and 2 again, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David committed two sins which the law of Moses provided no forgiveness for. That was adultery and murder. Death was the penalty. No sacrifice could appease God. No gift could have been presented to God to appease Him. There was nothing that He could do that would gain pardon. Absolutely nothing. However, David had this one thing going for him. He knew that God's forgiveness was not by human merit. That is, sacrifices or gifts, but was based solely on God's great mercy. That's what he had going for him. He appealed to God according to his great mercy. His opening line, have mercy on me, O God, was a plea not for what he deserved, but for divine mercy. David was desperately clinging to Onto divine mercy. God's perfect mercy. James Montgomery Boyce says. Many 
Many commentators have pointed out mercy is the sole basis of any approach to God by sinners. And I would have to agree to that. Mercy is what David needed. Mercy is what he pleaded for. What is mercy? What is mercy? Dr. Wayne Grudem describes mercy as God's goodness towards those in misery and distress. This describes me. Does it describe you? And this certainly describes David. He was in a pitiful state looking to the only one who could bring relief. David knew in his heart to appeal to God's mercy. According to God's mercy. But according to his steadfast love and abundant mercies. Not according to the merits or the general mercy of God which unbelievers depend on. But rather God's everlasting and unchangeable covenant love that is found in Christ. Derek Kidner says, steadfast love is a covenant word. And I believe David, in spite of his pitiful, sinful state, knew that he still belonged to God. He never, ever stopped believing that he still belonged to God, even when he sinned. David knew he had to have God's mercy according to his unfailing love and great compassion. In other words, David appealed to God to act according with his loving nature, not what he deserved. See, David understood God's covenant love towards him. A mother once approached Napoleon, the emperor, the French emperor Napoleon, seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offense twice, and justice demanded death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, It would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well then, the emperor said, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. See, forgiveness is based on mercy. It's not based on our good merits. It's based on God's mercy. And that mercy is found only in one person. That's the person of Jesus Christ. When you and I sin, we must immediately go to God for forgiveness and fall on his tender mercies. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You know, when we first came to Christ for forgiveness, it was because of God's own mercy, which is found in Christ alone. And when you and I sin now as Christians, we still come to him for forgiveness according to his abundant mercies found in Christ. Nothing has changed. The only thing is, David looked forward to the cross. We look back to the cross. <clears throat> I remember when I was, I was, I'd say, around nine years old, ten years old, I lived in a two-family apartment building on top of my uncle's shoe store, which was my grandfather's before he died. We lived in, a, we lived in one apartment, and, and the other apartment was another family. And I was a friend of the son of the family of the, the, the apartment that lived underneath us. And one day we were outside playing, and this guy, he got me mad. He got me really mad. Now, I was not one to get into fights very often, but he got me so mad that I socked him right in the jaw. And he started to cry, and he went home and told his mother, and his mother told my mother, and man, was I in trouble. I mean, to say the least, was I in trouble. My mother made me go and knock on his door and apologize. But because my mother disciplined me, I began to realize I was wrong, and when I went to apologize, I was hoping they would forgive me. So I realized, hey, I was wrong. And I was now going to ask for their forgiveness. 
I didn't go to them and say, I know I shouldn't have socked your son in the jaw, but he deserved it. I didn't. I, I, I came to them, I came to them and relied on their mercy, and they forgave me. See, their mercy triumphed over their judgment of me. Now that's, of course, on a human level. And how much greater is God's mercy towards us? How much? It's infinitely greater towards us than a family forgiven me. We can depend on that. Now this appeal on forgiveness is pictured in three ways. David says in the last half of verse 1 to verse 2, he says, Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. The first way forgiveness is pictured is David prayed that his transgressions be blotted out. Now transgressions basically means rebellion, to rebel. The metaphor here is, is as if God wrote David's sins in a book. And David is saying, erase my rebellion and willful departure from your record. And we all have rebelled against God and his holy commandments, if we're honest with ourselves. And only the gospel reveals how our transgressions could be blotted out. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14 says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Second way of forgiveness is pictured is, David prayed, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Now iniquity means perversion, it means depravity, it means a depraved action. It could also mean guilt uh, contracted by sin. David is comparing himself to dirty laundry that needs to be washed and washed again. His sin has deeply stained his soul and he needs to be washed multiple times. According to Charles Haddon Spurgeon, it is as if David prayed, Lord, wash and wash and wash again till the last stain is gone and not a trace of defilement is left. Sometimes we do laundry and we got a stain in our shirt or our pants or whatever it is and one washing is not enough. We need to do it again and again because the stain is so deep. Maybe it has grass or crayon stain or ketchup or whatever. But we need to do numerous washings to remove the stain. Well, the only thing that could wash David's deep crimson stain and guilt away and every person that belongs to God is God's great mercy through the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the third way forgiveness is pictured is David prayed, cleanse me from my sin. Sin means falling short or missing the mark. And we all miss the mark of God's high perfection. He says, cleanse me from my sin. It's pictured, this pictures the purification necessary in the Old Testament for temple worship. In Exodus 19 and Numbers 19, both the washing and cleansing of a person's clothes was symbolic of the inner condition so a repentant sinner could safely approach God's presence. What's the difference between washing and cleansing? That's what I was asking myself. Well, washing was the means and cleansing was the result. In other words, David needed his sins washed away and to be cleansed of his guilt. By the way, David used three words for sin. Transgression, sin itself, and iniquity. And these all speak of moral failures. Although each word defines a specific area of failure. However, the three together express complete 
moral failure and the deepest guilt. And David knew it. David knew it. That's why he used the three words. And, and he was not hiding it. He wasn't hiding his sin, which leads us to the, th- the next characteristic of genuine repentance. And that's deep desire for confession. <clears throat> we desire forgiveness for our sins, but we need to confess our sins. He says in verses 3 through 6, he says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned, and none what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. See, David was painfully aware of his sin, and finally confesses it. He says, I know my transgressions, Lord, and my sin is ever before me. You see, the sin that was in his heart was now in the forefront of his mind. This sin was haunting him, and, and the guilt was unbearable. <clears throat> and I know what that feels like. And if you're a Christian, you know what that feels like. The point is, we sinned against God, and the first thing we must do is we must admit our sin. We must admit our sin. Confession basically means to agree with God. That's what the word means. It means to agree with God. You're saying, I have sinned, God. I have committed adultery. I have murdered. I stole. I lied. I cheated. Whatever the sin is, you're saying, God, it is a sin. When I sin, and I realize I sin, there is no rest in my mind and heart until I admit my sin. And any time I sin... And I try to pray. My prayers are empty until I genuinely confess and forsake that sin. I don't know if any of you have felt that way. But I feel that way quite often. If I sin, if I have a little spat with my wife and I was wrong, which is, of course, most of the time. (laughs) And I go to pray. I'm telling you, I can't pray. I cannot pray until I get get up off of my knees and go to my wife and ask her for her forgiveness. That's what sin does. It separates. Doesn't, we don't lose our salvation. It separates us from fellowship with God. <clears throat> the second thing we must do when we sin against God is to admit the sins. The sin is ultimately against God. David said, against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that, you, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. When Nathan the prophet confronted David with his sin, David finally responded and said in 2 Samuel 12, 13, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. He didn't say, I sinned against Bathsheba, or I sinned against Uriah, or I sinned against the nation of Israel. No, he said, I sinned against the Lord. Now we may think, but David also sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, and Israel, and that's true. However, it is ultimately against God. First of all, as one commentator said, sin by its very definition is against God, since it is only by God's law that sin is defined as sin. For example, if we steal our neighbor's car, the state says we committed a crime by their own laws. It's a wrong against humanity. Only before God is that considered what? Sin. Secondly, our neighbor... Who we harmed is made in God's image. We have harmed the one who God himself created and who said, love your neighbor. 
Proverbs 3.29 says, Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. So because God created our neighbor in his image, when we harm him or her, we're really sinning against who? God. We can sin against our neighbor. We can sin against ourselves, as 1 Corinthians says. But sin is fundamentally and ultimately against God. And we should take note that David called it what? Sin. He didn't call it, oh, it's weakness or a mistake. No, it's sin. It's evil. He recognized that sin was evil in God's sight. And because David accepted God's verdict, he admits to the correctness of the justice and the judgment of God. In other words, he says, God, you judged me correctly when you spoke against my sin. You're right. I was wrong. I sinned against you. I like what Dr. Steve Lawson says. He says, no alibis or shifting blame here. David offered no lame excuses to God, only a full confession of his own guilt that deserved divine justice. And the third thing we do when we, sinned against, when we sinned against God is we must be open and honest with God about our sin. Now David was already open and honest, but he goes deeper into the matter of his sin. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now David is not blaming his mother for sin, obviously. The whole psalm is against that thought. What he's saying there is, there was never a moment in his entire life that he was not a sinner. He's not speaking about a single fault, but rather a sinful nature that started inside his mother's womb nine months before he was born. And I know a lot of people have a problem with that, but that's what it is. When David was conceived, the Adamic nature, the Adamic sin nature was transmitted to him. And we all have this sin, this sin nature transmitted to us at conception. The theologians call it original sin or inherited sin. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. <clears throat> David also knew that for approximately one year he lived a lie, covering up his sin of adultery and murder. And now understands God desires what? Inward truth. That's what God desires from all of us. You know, it's better not to hide your sin. It's better to be open and honest with God. Verse 5 is the negative side, is our inward sinful nature as well as the act itself which we hide. The positive side is verse 6. It is God's desire... God desires inward truth, and he teaches us wisdom, and wisdom leads us to live openly and honest before the Lord. Don't try to hide your sin, ever. Always be open and honest with God. Even, sometimes, you know, we try to hide the slightest sin. Oh, we think it's the slightest sin, but to God it's a great offense no matter what the sin is. But we try to hide things. You know, we might cheat on our taxes a little, you know, a few dollars here and there, but God understands that. Anyway, the government, the government is, they're crooks. And and we justify, you know, our sins. Don't, listen, listen, be honest. Be honest with God. That's all he wants is honesty. David tried to hide it. David tried to hide his sin for a whole year and it affected him physically as well as emotionally. Deeply, physically and deeply emotionally. Listen to Psalm 32 verses 3 through 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up 
as by the heat of a summer. And before I became a Christian, I was Roman Catholic. And on occasion, I would go to confession and confess my sins to the priest. I always went to the confessional booth with sins weighing down on my mind. Especially, I have the type of very, I have very sensitive conscience. So, when I went to the confessional booth with my sins weighing on my mind, I always felt this heavy guilt, this real deep guilt in my heart. However, once I confessed my sins to the priest, um, what, which, uh, anyway, which I thought was sins, I would walk out of the confessional booth with the weight of guilt off my mind. I would feel like a new person. I would feel like the gentle breeze of the summer hitting my face. I would feel like I, I could hear the birds chirping. You know, I just felt like a new person. Right. Let me give a disclaimer here. I am not advocating Roman Catholic confession. I don't believe that we have to confess to a priest. The Bible does say in James, it says, confess your faults to one another. And it, that does good for Christians to confess their faults. But ultimately, we need to confess to God. The point I'm making is confessing does something wonderful to the physical and emotional part of our being. And David knew this so well. Again, in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, it speaks of the physical and the emotional effect of unconfessed sin that it had on David's life. But listen to verse 5. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave, my, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Be open and honest with God about your sin. Confess it to Him, and confess it to one another. It's good to have someone you can trust and confess your sins to one another. You know, I can confess my sins to my wife, to Brian, Terry, um, Aunt Diane. I have people I can confess my sins to. You know, you need to be able to do that. And ultimately to God. The third characteristic of genuine repentance is a deep desire of cleansing. We need not only forgiveness and confession, but we need also to be cleansed. Verses 7 through 9, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Cleansing, washing, and blot out are the repeat of verses 1 and 2 in reverse order. We already touched upon cleansing in general, but I think David now gets a little more specific on how to be cleansed. He says, perch me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, I will be whiter than snow. David wanted to be washed until he was totally cleansed from the stain of sin. Just as the prophet Isaiah said, in Isaiah 1.18, he says, Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they, are like red, they, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. He wanted complete cleansing. And he knew it only could be through one means, the purging, the purging or cleansing with hyssop. Now hyssop was a small leafy plant that was frequently found in the crevices of stone walls. And because of its shape, it was used as a small brush to sprinkle blood. The first mention of its use is in Exodus 12.22, when the Jews were com uh, commanded to dip the hyssop plant in blood and put some of the blood on the top of the sides of the doorframe. And when the angel of death saw the blood, he passed over the Jewish household, and the firstborn did not die. Mo many of you remember that story. Also, it was used in the by the Old Testament priests to sprinkle blood or water, on a person being ceremonially, 
ceremonially cleansed from defilement, such as leprosy or touching a dead body. And David knew this. So when he says, cleanse me with hyssop, he was asking God to cleanse him with blood. Forgive me, he was saying basically, on the basis of the innocent victim who shed his blood in my place. We also need to come to God this way. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's only because Jesus Christ shed his blood that we can be forgiven, cleansed, and find mercy. And there is nothing in this world that could be greater, that could bring greater joy than knowing you've been forgiven. Amen? Amen. Joy is the result of forgiveness and cleansing. David's words, let me hear joy and gladness, would be the result of the forgiveness he so earnestly sought. He says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now bones is a figure of speech for the framework of the entire person. Listen, David was crushed by Nathan the prophet's rebuke. He was emotionally sick and probably physically sick as well. And this is what sin does. It saps your strength and it saps your joy. And I know what that feels like, and I'm sure you do too. David wanted peace and joy back in his heart. That's why David could say in Psalm 32, verses 1 to 2, he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whom spirit there is no deceit. What freedom, what peace, what joy in experiences God's pleasure in forgiveness. <clears throat> David also requests what he requested in verse 1. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities, which were ever before him. There is also joy in knowing that God will no longer look upon your sin. is Is it possible, I should say, is it possible that God or David could experience forgiveness with the Lord still looking upon his sin? No. When people say, I'll forgive you, But I'll never forget what you did. I'll never forget what you did. What they are really saying is, I'll never forgive you. Anyone who refuses to put the hurt behind them really has not forgiven. Ah, but God cleanses us and takes our sins and throws them into the sea of forgetfulness. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah said in the 43rd chapter, 25th verse, he says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake, and I will not remember your sins. And all of us who are in Christ, he says the same, I will not remember your sins anymore. I read a story of a man who was at a grocery store with his wife, staring at some delectable desserts in the counter of the bakery section. And two women were standing next to him, eyeing the same dessert. I thought the story was about Brian, but I don't think it is. When he told them that they looked delicious, and he wanted to try all of them, one of them responded, I feel free to eat them because I'm going to go on a cleanse tomorrow. It was interesting how the cleanse of her system cleansed her conscience. She felt free to eat anything she wanted. The effects of a body cleanse are temporary. Even the freedom it offers to eat anything is temporary. But the washing of our souls is eternal. It cleanses our conscience before God and provides us with the freedom to return to Him in worship. 
I have swept away your sins like a cloud. I have scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Oh, return to me. I have paid the price to set you free. Isaiah 44, verse 22. First John tells us that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The fourth characteristic of genuine repentance is a deep desire for inward renewal. We need to be forgiven, yes. We need to be cleansed, yes. But we also need inward renewal. Verses 1 and 9 deal with forgiveness, while the last half of this psalm deals with purity, a new heart. I love this, these two verses. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. David confessed his sin and received God's forgiveness. However, this tenacious, repentant sinner doesn't stop there. He wants nothing less than a miracle. He asked God to create in him a clean heart. Only the God who created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, ex nihilo, that's what the scholars call it, out of nothing, could create in David a new heart. Why was David not satisfied with just forgiveness? Because he understood that a clean, pure heart and a renewed spirit would be the only way he could not fall back into sin. Praise God. And there is no record of David ever falling back into that kind of sin. Praise God. David needed a complete spiritual renewal. Listen, David was aware that his sinful acts were the result of his sinful nature. He understood, as Romans 7.18 said, that nothing good dwells in him, that is, in his flesh. And if he was going to have victory over sin, God was going to have to create out of nothing a new nature. And the only reason why Christians can have victory over sin is because of the new covenant of the blood of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel the prophet, speaking for God in the 36th chapter, Verses 25 to 27 said, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. And Paul in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. And this is a wonderful promise found in Christ and Christ alone. But even Christians with their new hearts who have sinned need spiritual renewal. A renewal of a right heart attitude. We know that even as Christians, we can slip and fall into sin and we need right heart attitudes once again. But David is not leaving one stone unturned. He also prays for God not to cast him away from his presence and not to take his spirit from him. He is not talking about the loss of salvation here as some have, have used. Because Psalm 51 is not the words of an unregenerate man. An unregenerate man would not know these kind of words. He's speaking about an empowered life. David knew that if God's presence was not with him and his Holy Spirit was taken from him, he would be absolutely powerless. 
And today most scholars believe that David is not talking about the fear of losing his salvation or eternal security, but he's saying that he is powerless to live a holy life without God. Praise God. We are powerless to do anything without God's presence and without God's spirit. Most of us remember the commercial with the toy rabbit powered by the Energizer battery. The rabbit kept going while the other toy rabbit stopped because they didn't have the Energizer battery. Well, all Christians have the Holy Spirit. However, the Christian that is daily filled with the Spirit is empowered to do anything. But when we sin, we kind of lose that power. We don't lose the Holy Spirit, but we lose His empowerment. Until we confess our sin and be renewed by God, then we have the Holy Spirit's infilling again, and we're to do the Lord's work and whatever He asks. We need to, as Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit. However, when we sin, we need to, again, to be filled. David also requests for God to restore to him the joy of his salvation. He was seeking God for a joyful heart. Dr. Steve Lawson says, Sin and joy cannot exist in the same heart at the same time. The two are mutually exclusive. You know, when you sin, you don't have joy. You know that. I know that. Sin has depleted his joy. And as long as there was unconfessed sin, there was no joy, no fellowship with God. And he also wanted a willing spirit. And that was for obedience and holiness. Sin will keep us from having a clean heart. And a right spirit within us. Empowerment from the Holy Spirit. Joy of our salvation. And a willing spirit to obey God's word and to persevere in holiness. Realize how much we forfeit for a few moments of pleasures of sin. David, as well as any sinner who seeks God's forgiveness, finds themselves asked for so many things because we realize we lost so many things when we sinned. And the beauty of this is God delights. He delights to restore us back to spiritual health when we humble ourselves and repent of the wickedness of our lives. I love that about God. When we fall and we fail, He loves to restore us. All He's looking for, and we'll get into it a little later, in a little while, is a broken and contrite heart. A humbled heart. The fifth characteristic of genuine repentance is a deep desire for a consecrated life. When we're forgiven, cleansed, and have a new heart, we will have a consecrated life. Verse 13 to 17, he says, Then I will teach transgressions, transgressors your way. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. See, David vows to teach sinners to glorify God and to humble himself. For David vows to teach sinners what he himself has learned. Because he was forgiven, cleansed, and renewed by God, he recognizes and desires to proclaim salvation to others. He wants to tell them about God's goodness and mercy in response to God's gracious dealings with him. When I first came to faith in Christ and found forgiveness and realized I was 
forgiven. You couldn't shut me up about Christ. You couldn't shut me up about Christ. And I want to tell everybody about Jesus. And I know some of you are the same. It's difficult for me to understand how anyone who has been forgiven so much will not tell others what Christ has done for them. Now I know there's levels of that. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about just never sharing what Christ has done for you. Has God been gracious to you? Go and tell others the glorious gospel of of His Son. When Jesus healed the demonic man, and the man now wanted to go with Jesus, Jesus did not permit him, but said, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how He has had mercy on you. Listen, you don't have to be a professional theologian to share the gospel. You don't have to be a pastor or a teacher of the Word of God to share the gospel. You go tell them how the Lord has had mercy on you, how He has forgiven your sins. And... But how was David to teach others and glorify God? He does it out of a broken and contrite heart. A heart that has been humbled. And he knew animal sacrifices were actually hateful to God without a contrite heart. Old Testament sacrifices were required and acceptable if the sinner's heart was genuinely repentant. Of course, the Old Testament animal sacrifices did one thing. They pointed to Christ. And again, Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So forgiveness is on the basis of the sacrifice made by Jesus Christ. And there's only one way to come to faith in Jesus, by a repentant, broken, contrite heart. Jesus told a short parable in Luke 18, verses 10 through 14, about two men who went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other one was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. That's it. A broken and contrite heart. God loves that. He genuinely loves that. Let's go to God when we sin and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The sixth and last characteristic of genuine repentance is a deep desire for national restoration. When we have experienced forgiveness, we will be concerned for others as well as concerned for our nation's restoration. Verse 18 to 19. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. See, David was the king of Israel. And he was aware of the connection between his personal holiness and the national blessings from God, which the people would enjoy. His sin affected others as well as himself. And now he prays for the national or the nation's restoration. You see, the walls, the buildings, the temple of Jerusalem at that time were not completed until the days of Solomon. And David could have been praying that this work would not be hindered by his sin and that the work would continue or possibly 
this could possibly also be a metaphor, as Dr. Boyce says, suggesting that the strength of Jerusalem is in the strength of its people, and that this had been weakened because of David's sin, and now he needed to be restored. So whether it means literally the completion of the walls that were stopped because of David's sin, or Jerusalem and its people restored, now that David is renewed, he prayed that the nation would be renewed. You see, first, get this, first personal renewal, then corporate renewal. If I sin, I'm not going to pray for my nation. God wants me to get right first here. He wants me to leave my gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to my brother or whatever the sin was and then come back and offer him a gift. Before I'm going to pray for my nation, before I'm going to pray for my church, I have to pray that God forgives me and restores me. Then I can pray effectively for you and my church and my nation. Many times we can't pray for our nation. Many times we can't pray for our church. It's because we're dealing with our own sin. God says, get right now. And then you'll be able to pray and affect and be effective on your church and your nation and your city and so on and so forth. <clears throat> Once David was forgiven, he would offer sacrifices and offerings with a right heart and they would be acceptable and pleasing to the, to the Lord. The late Chuck Colson, who was involved in Watergate scandal, ended up in prison for obstruction of justice. His sins affected others as well as this nation. However, Christ came into his life, and his life, his changed life now affected others positively. His ministry, and many of you, many of you have heard of it, Angel Tree, has brought great joy to many prisoners and their families and their children. And Chuck Olson is with the Lord now, but the ministry he started by the grace of God is still, to this day, blessing families. What one repentant, humble heart can do in the name of Christ. You see, it's not true that we can sin as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Our sin affects others. Divorce, abortion, homosexuality, etc., etc., has profoundly a negative effect on others as well as our nation. There is absolutely no doubt about that. And we can see the sad shape the United States of America is in because of sin. On the other hand, if we obey God and avoid sin, that also has an effect on others, a positive effect. If we have sinned and truly repented, we can and will genuinely care and pray for our nation and its leaders. Let me bring this to a conclusion. There is no sin too great for God to forgive. No matter what you've done, God is willing to forgive. And here's what He requires. A truly repentant, broken, and contrite heart like David's. David sinned greatly. I doubt anybody here did what David did. He sinned greatly against the Lord. He didn't only commit adultery, but he had her her husband murdered. That's, that's a great sin. But he sought the Lord with all his heart, pleading for forgiveness based on God's goodness and mercy found in his son Jesus Christ. And guess what? He found it. David had a complete turnaround. And that's what repentance is, folks. It's a turnaround. 
It's you're following one way and you turn around now, you're following the cross of Jesus Christ. We can too. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow produces repentance. Repentance is a gift. Repentance is a gift. It's God's loving kindness that leads you to repentance. Confession and repentance needs to be a daily part of our lives. Daily part of our lives. Listen, we sin every day. And we need to confess every day. As we grow in Christ, sinning becomes less frequent. However, we still sin and therefore need God's forgiveness and cleansing. True repentance leans on God's forgiveness, His mercy, and His cleansing found in our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no forgiveness. There is no mercy. There is no grace outside of Christ. There is none. And when we ourselves have experienced forgiveness, we will shout to a lost and dying world, God's amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. I'd like to close with a quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He says, A Christian must never leave off repenting, for I fear he will never leave off sinning. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your loving kindness leads us towards repentance. It's your mercy that is found in Jesus Christ that leads us to repentance. We cannot repent unless your loving kindness touches our lives. And then, God, when we do repent, forgiveness is not only there, God, it's abundant. It's abundant, like the prodigal son who came home. Before he could hardly get the words out of his mouth, the father was putting a robe on him, a ring on his finger, sandals on his, on his feet. And had a great party for his son. God, help us not to take sin lightly, but when we do sin, to genuinely repent. In Christ's precious name. Amen.